we're going to read our scripture reading first, and the, the format of the sermon, just so you know, has a little bit of sort of mechanics and teaching, and then we'll come back to the scripture passage. But we're talking over the next three weeks about studying the Bible, and so we're kind of in the foundational phase of things this week. So I wanna, I'm going to ask you to turn to Titus chapter 1, and we'll read all 16 verses as our reading right now. And as you turn there, um, sometimes uh, I have said, or some other people that are reading scripture will sometimes say the word of the Lord at the end of the reading, or this is the word of the Lord. The response that usually comes is, thanks be to God. So I want to practice that, because I think that's actually, as we talk about studying the Bible, uh, we tend to be less liturgical around here, but we do like it still. So if I say the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's try it again. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So if you don't say it, no big deal. But if you do, it really is a way of just expressing thanks, God, for giving us your word. That's what we're saying in that. Let's read Titus chapter 1 and be prepared for thanks be to God at the end. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, in which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God our Father, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order that which was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and glut lazy gluttons. <laughs> This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Now, keep it open. We'll come back to it, but it's going to take a moment before we come back to the text of Titus. As we've looked at this, started this series last week, read, study, and love God's word or the Bible. We're talking about the fact that the Bible is a gift that God has given us, and in it we find life. And in the pages of scripture, we find joy because of that. And so in Pauline fashion, just following the Apostle Paul, I'm going to mix metaphors right now for fun. 
uh, because we're talking about foundations uh, at the beginning of this. That's what the sermon today is worked on, study the Bible, foundations. Let me talk about destinations instead as we begin. Uh, when I, years ago, I worked in Chicago, in downtown Chicago, but we lived in Joliet, which is an hour away by train from Chicago. I'd go into Union Station every day, hour in, hour out. So it's two-hour commute total. Got a lot of reading done, uh, sometimes a lot of just mindless staring out the window, too, because that's what you do on the train when you go by. And especially if there's a lawnmower on the tra train tracks or a freight train blocking your way, then it's two or three hours, and then you get a lot of mindless stuff done in that, those times. But when you get to downtown Chicago, I would roll into Union Station, and then you're in this mass of people, and you're walking up the flight of stairs and down the hall, and up another flight of stairs and up another flight of stairs. No big deal, because you all just end up at the same place. But at the end of the day, you come back to Union Station, and all the trains are lined up, and they look exactly alike, and you better make sure you get on the right train. Otherwise, what happens? You end up in the wrong place, right? They all look very similar, but they're not going to end up in the same place. And so it's important like I, I'm using, mixing my metaphors here like Paul, uh, that we have things set in the right way when we start our study of the Bible or have the right foundations or else the house is going to crumble, whatever metaphor you want to use in order to get to the right place when we set things up. So I want to give you a couple terms, and we really don't need to mess around with these terms past this week, although I may bring up one or two past this week. Um, and the first one is exegesis. It's this fancy Greek word that you hear in biblical studies a lot, but these help us understand what our task is when we study the Bible. So the first word is exegesis, and this is a Greek word that means to lead or to draw out is all it means, um, and it's to, and this is from the pocket dictionary of biblical studies, to interpret a passage on its own terms. That's what it means, and it usually refers to verse by verse or phrase by phrase explanation. It doesn't have to refer to that. That is, we want to understand the verse in its context. And the goal of biblical study is always exegesis, that we would understand what the verse means. So, and, and I'm on about this quite a lot. Often we gather together in our groups, and the first question we ask when we read scripture is, what does this verse mean to me? Drop to me at the beginning of any of your Bible studies. Because you want to get there, application, implication, whatever word you want to use, but you have to start with, what does this verse mean? That's always where we're starting. That's what exegesis is doing. What does this verse mean? In its time and place, when Paul wrote it, or when Jesus said it, or whatever it is, what does it mean? That's all that word means, but it's important to have captured that word and the concept, even if you don't remember the word. Biblical nerds use it all the time, but you don't have to use it. But what I want to point out is that and what we'll point out over the next three weeks is that all that we need is found in God's Word. All that we need is found in God's Word. Even with the typo on the screen, that's all me. All that we need is found in God's Word. And we'll develop that thought over the next weeks. In exegesis, you're going to find that if we find the meaning, we're going to find what we need. And the meaning is there to be found. Second word I want to bring up is a fancy word, again, you don't have to do much with, but you need to understand the principle hermeneutics. Uh, Warren Wearsby, I like his definition, skilled interpretation. Sometimes you'll hear the lens by which we see the text, that kind of thing. But functionally, what you have to do when you read the Bible is be a little bit of a historian, but also put yourself in the text. So you don't want to interpret it simply. This is why you don't start with, what does it mean to me? You start with, what does it mean? You don't want to think, what does it mean now? And look at it as a 21st century Lincolnite. You want to look at it, what did it look like in, if we're looking at Titus, Crete. 
when Titus received the letter. As much as, as in my ability to put myself there and understand what are they hearing or seeing when the text is being delivered in whatever way it's being delivered. We have to kind of mentally put ourselves there. And the reason we want to put ourselves there is we will see different things depending on the time and place that we live. Um, I studied as a historian, and I read a lot of early church letters, 200s, 300s, 400s AD, and I was really surprised with how many times, as practical advice, they quote from, from Paul's writing to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, because it was practical advice in that time and place. When was the last time anybody quoted that here, probably as practical advice? We miss it, right? Because it's just not something we're paying attention to. Okay, that's good. That's something back then. Whereas sometimes we'll, we'll kind of miss the point sometimes in our time and place. I remember lots of times I've heard people quote Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians about men taking off their hats when they pray because they should have their head uncovered and women should have their head covered. But the thing that Paul was getting at was the women having their head covered, not the men having their heads uncovered. And we're not going to get into that. But sometimes we'll miss the point of what's being pointed out because of our current lens and time and place. So we need to be historians a little bit. That's the task of hermeneutics. Third thing that we need to understand in setting this all up is then the opposite of exegesis. And here you have a potato-potato scenario. You could say eisegesis or asegesis. Don't really care which one you use pronunciation-wise. This is reading meaning into a text. Exegesis, understanding what the meaning of the text is. Eisegesis, reading what you want into the text and using it for the wrong purposes, basically. Uh, a particularly egregious example of a couple years ago, within the last couple years, um, this is a higher up in another denomination uh, who did this, who said that in a sermon that the slave girl in Acts 16, who's possessed by a demon, when Paul uh, exercises the demon from her, that's an injustice, because now she has no living. Okay, that's eisegesis, pretty clearly. Um, she has a loss of income and she can't survive anymore because Paul exercised the demon. Okay, that's, that's not right. Uh, you'll hear this in health and wealth gospel. Give and it will be given to you. People might quote from Luke 6 that if you give, God's going to give you money and stuff and things like that more as you give. Or sometimes culturally we'll just hear that don't judge lest he be judged and that's where they stop it and reading their own meaning into it. Jesus says more about judging there and there's more to be made of that than simply don't judge. All that to say, sometimes people will say, well, good exegesis is what we need to do. I would just say exegesis. You don't even need to put the quality of good on there. Exegesis is our goal in studying the Bible, and it's going to be good if we've done exegesis. It's going to be better the deeper we go with it, but if we get the main point of the text, we've done our job of exegesis, and you can always go deeper. But that's our goal. So that's why we don't need to worry about those terms ever again other than we've understood what our task is when we study the Bible. And so what I'm going to do is walk us through a few steps, and I'll just point out, I've put together, this is my version of how to study the Bible. There are copies out in the back. I'll send it out in the Tuesday email this week as well. This is the whole thing, not just what we're going over today, over the next three weeks. But what I've put together is a way to study the Bible pretty simply over my years of experience and reading about it that is adjustable, malleable, and doesn't require you to be sitting for eight hours a day studying the Bible, but you can do it in little bouts here and there if you do it right. But the first thing I want to point out, and here Clara can preach, she just said it, set up a time to study. If you're going to study the Bible, you have to make the time to do it. It's got to be a discipline, and you've got to set it up. 
But the nice thing about studying, whereas devotional reading, I, I recommend that you have a really a daily regimen or regular regimen, daily is best, I think, uh, where you're reading it regularly to let the word wash over you and work on you. With study, you could do it once a week or twice a week or in little bouts here and there, uh, but you just have to make the time to do it. It can be a sprint or a marathon. It's really, that's not really going to matter as much as that you just schedule and do it. Because even when I do my sermon study and set things up each week, it's a little different each week how it goes. Sometimes I'll do, you know, a 20-minute round here of reading something, and then I'll do something else for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, or sometimes it'll be a couple hours that I'm working on it. But it's in little chunks here and there throughout the week, because I do other things besides write the sermon in the week, I've discovered. Uh, quite a lot of them, actually. Um, and so I actually have to make the time to make that work. And sometimes it's a little bout, sometimes long. Study works that way. What, what we don't want to do is what I've heard for years and years and years about all kinds of different things, where somebody says, I really should, right? And when we start a phrase with, I really should go to church, I really should read the Bible, I really should, whatever it is, often what we mean is, but I'm not going to. Have you run into this? I really should get together for coffee with you, but we're not going to, right? It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It happens. Um, if it's not part of your schedule, it's not going to happen. And it's gotta, it does have to be a bit of a discipline, though, just like devotional reading. Study has to be a discipline. And sometimes we, we schedule it. We may not buy, be quite feeling it, and there are certain times when, you know what, if you're not paying attention to the words on the page, go do something else and come back, but come back. But I would say this. We need to make it a discipline and schedule it. And I got to tell you, if you're not feeling it, I can't dictate how that's going to go. But I also want to point out this. We also can't micromanage or dictate how the Holy Spirit might work on us even when we're not feeling it. So if we come to the text as a discipline, God can still do a lot. And we've got to make it a discipline so that it actually happens. So if you're studying, you've, you've set up the time, read through what you're going to read through. Read through the text. So we're, we're working on Titus right now. In order to prepare for this, um, I read through all of Titus, even though we're lo only looking at a couple parts of chapter 1 today. You want to read through larger sections of whatever you're studying. If you decide that you're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, read the beginning of Matthew up to about chapter 8 or something like that. So you kind of get the context. Read the whole book. That doesn't take that long. And by the way, if reading is difficult, uh, listen, there are plenty of free modern translations that you can listen to online. I'll put some of those in Tuesday's email as well so you can see. Um, but read as much context as you can if you're studying a small portion so that you can get the idea of what you're, you're actually looking at. So you get it in context. That's, that's exegesis, right? I want to understand where it comes from and what it's doing in that text right there. Get a journal. Write it down as well as you read through it. Write all kinds of notes all over the place. I do this. This is how I, I do sermons. I, I write, and then I'll type, and then I'll write again, and then I'll type again. And it's a lot of going back and forth, but it processes the thought. You get a lot of different things going. And I would suggest to you, that you do get a journal to do this. If you're planning on studying God's Word, write as much as you can instead of typing, because there's a different relationship of pen to paper and how we interpret the material and think through it when we write. It works for class notes for certain, but definitely I found that, that as I write it, do something tactile like that, I think differently as I write it down and outline it. And I like you can, you can circle things easier, underline things, all kinds of things in your notes. So read it through, all the way if you can. 
And as you're studying then, as you read it through, once you've finished reading, this frankly is probably the most important step in the whole thing. Pray. Stop and digest. I know, it's easy to be like, well, Pastor Evan, you've got to throw a prayer in there some way, so, you know, step three is a good place to put it in. But, and I'll quote J.I. Packer, it's one of my favorite uh, lines that he wrote, Dr. Packer, in his book, Knowing God. He's talking about theology, studying theology, but it fits here. He says, if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. Why? He points out that it leads to conceit and doesn't lead to salvation. It puffs us up with pride because we know more, but it doesn't save us. And the same thing is true with studying the Bible. If we don't pray as we read the text, we're missing the point of the relationship we're developing with the one who gave us the text. Every Monday, as I prepare when I'm preaching, I stop over at a prayer chapel just down the street here, a few blocks away, and I pray generally and open myself up to hearing God for the week, but I also open up the text and sit there and look at what's coming up that week. Even if I've looked at it ahead of time, I read it, and I sit and pray and dwell on it, asking for God's presence to be there as I dwell on it so I can hear it well and hear it well through the week. Especially if you read large portions of Scripture, it's kind of like eating a large meal. You don't want to do something really strenuous right after you do that, right? Some of us probably don't want to do something strenuous anyways after a meal at all. But you kind of want to sit and digest. And we should do that with Scripture, with God's Word. Devotional reading kind of lends itself to that, right? We read it, take it in, go on about your day. You're kind of digesting it slowly. When we study it, we can kind of lose focus. And I, I know I myself have tried it where I'm studying it just for its own sake, and it does come up wanting every time. You have to take the time to digest and take it in with God's presence and ask God to be there so you can hear it clearly with God there. Our desire must be to know the living God, not just to practice a discipline and not just to read the Bible for its own sake. Then the fourth step that we're going to cover today, and then we're actually going to do it, okay? We're actually going to do this in a moment, is to answer the basic questions yourself. And here I want to challenge you. This is, this is the who, what, where, when, and why. If you're studying scripture, you can probably answer most of these questions yourself if you study scripture without ever consulting an outside source. And we'll do so this morning in Titus. But as you read the text, I don't know if you're in the habit of this, circle things, underline things, highlight things, whatever it is, and have a Bible where you do that. Where you, a physical Bible, I think, is great for that, where you can underline a circle and draw all around it so you can see the different key words and ideas, and you'll start to see themes that pop out of the text as you do that. Don't be afraid to mark it up. And as you have a notebook or a journal, don't be afraid to make an outline. And you might change it, make a different outline later. If you ever do consult you know, the scholarly literature and, and different commentaries on Titus or anything else, any other book in the Bible that you might see, every scholar has a slightly different outline they've created. They're pretty close. They cut things up a little bit differently on how they see things. Your outline might be different too, but it's going to get you to the text and to understanding what's going on. 
And you might change it later and say, okay, I missed this. This is how it's really supposed to go. But you're going to see key words and key points. Make markings of those. Write them down. Make notes to follow up. But start to answer those basic who, what, where, when, why. So let's try it with Titus. So now you can pull Titus back out. Let's give it a shot. Um, if you look at verse 1, you can see who wrote it. Paul, he says, the servant of God, he wrote it. You can see who is receiving this. And we can see that it's a letter, too. If you look at verse 4, it says, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith. And you can see it looks like a greeting in verses 1 through 4. So it's what we call a salutation or a greeting in an ancient letter. So we can see already, Paul wrote it to Titus. It's a letter, and it's short. We can also see that if you actually read through all three chapters of it. It's not very long. You can also ask the question, and we're going to have to hold on to this one for a little bit. We'll kind of answer it a little bit, but we'll answer it more later. Is there a bigger audience in mind? Because it appears to be written to Titus, but does Paul have something bigger in mind as he writes it? Keep that in mind as you consider. Second, we can look at what is the occasion, why did Paul write it, that kind of thing. We'll put the what and the why together. Verse 5 gives us a pretty clear answer on that. It's to finish the work of church planting, basically, putting, of establishing and maturing these churches that were put together in Crete. So, uh, and I don't, did I put my map on there, Mark? I forget. I didn't, yo, I did, yes, excellent. I'm glad I did my work this week. Okay, we also see that it was to appoint elders in the town of Crete. The map is almost useless to us right now, but I just wanted to show you this. One, I got this free online on biblehub.com because there's resources out there. That's what I want you to know first of all. And two, the reason that it actually has a little bit of use, even though it probably looks like an eye chart to you from where you are, is that you can see that Crete is an island, not a city. So when Paul's saying, I want you to appoint elders around Crete, there's all kinds of different churches around. So it's a regional thing that Paul's getting at here. Titus, your regional leader, kind of like a bishop in a sense, uh, look around this area and appoint the elders that we need. So that's what's supposed to be going on. All right, thanks, Mark. Now, we can also see some key points that have already come out of the text as far as why this was written. You can see that leadership was needed then and quality leadership was needed. And you can see that's in verse uh, five, as we just saw, and what the quality of those leaders looks like, six, seven, eight, and nine. And then you can see that there's deception that's reaching into the churches. That's both Jewish deception, you can see in verse 10 and following. And then verse 13, uh, 12 and 13 points out uh, that there is also an opportunity that with bad theology, you have people that are willing to accept it pretty easily because of the nature of Cretans. And we'll come back to that verse in a moment. Now, Lastly, before we get into verse 5, it says, the question is, when was this written? This is one of those cases where that's not actually that relevant to the content of the letter. Um, but we can tell, and we'll get into cross-references later, but cross-references give you a little idea that at least this probably happens after Acts 15, the letter that's written to all the churches about how to act. And you can also see, according to Galatians, you get Titus mentioned that Titus was probably a leader with some experience who had traveled around with Paul uh, and so knew what he was doing in order to do this task. Not really useful to us to know when it was written. But now, let's look at two key verses, Titus 1.5, as we consider uh, what's going on here. 
Titus 1.5, we saw it's the reason we said that we, the letter's written, the reason I left you in Crete, was that you might put in order that what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we need quality leaders of wisdom who can navigate the difficulties ahead. We need quality leaders of wisdom who, in this place that is, we know, made up of Gentiles, again, we didn't need a commentary to find out that information. This is made up of Gentiles, Cretans, who will settle for less than the gospel. And this is the, the line, we've got to read verse 12 again, just because it's so great, where Paul says, one of Crete's own prophets, your footnote says it's Epimenides, one of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Can you imagine if your pastor wrote that in a church letter? Lincolnites are, I'm just kidding, we're not. But he wrote that about Cretans, going to people in Crete. Paul's, Paul's kind of genius in how he does this stuff. But it tells us a lot about what, what's going on. They would settle for less than the gospel without good leadership. Secondly, we know that according to verse 10 and following that there's a false gospel being laid out from the circumcision group who's come in and done this for their own gain, it says, but they're coming in and saying that you need the law of Moses in addition to the law of Christ, in addition to Christ's work. He didn't fulfill the law of Moses. You need something more. And so we have two problems that are being addressed here. And so that tells us that the people that we're dealing with are both Jewish and Gentile in Crete. It's a mixed church in that way. Verse 15, then, is one other area where we can gather some useful information as we answer these W questions, who, what, where, why, when. Verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Sometimes we will work very hard, if you're studying the Bible, to get to a word, pure, might be one of these, or corrupted. And we'll kind of want to dig in and do some kind of word study in some way. Maybe we feel like we have the tools, maybe we don't. But I, understand, I want to understand, what does pure mean when Paul says it? And here's one of those moments where pure, while it has a deeper meaning than what we might see here, points back to the quality of leadership in verses 6 through 9. That's what Paul's getting at. We can tell these are Jewish categories. Uh, pure and impure are Jewish ritual categories, so that tells us, again, about the quality of who Paul's writing to. He's writing to both Jew and Gentile. But we can also see, uh, he's pointing out that Jesus makes us pure. That's what happens. It's not our Jewishness or our circumcision or whatever that makes us that way. And he's pointing back to the quality of leaders and saying, that's what purity is going to look like, at least the baseline level of it. And he's also pointing out something important about leadership. Leadership sets the pace for the people. You need this in your leaders, otherwise they're going to settle for less. It is true that people may not always rise to the level of a leader if they're at that level, but they definitely will lower to low expectations. If a leader does something corrupt, people will more easily say, well, then I can do it too. You need quality leaders, Paul is saying. And it's doubly important because if the leaders aren't mission-focused and aren't strong on those matters then the mission and what, and what matters most will be lost, and it's hard work to be a leader. To the pure, all things are pure. Paul's saying, here's what that's going to look like within the church. 
people who are hospitable and can manage their own household, those are the people who want to be leadership, leader in leadership so that we are the pure church, so that we are the ones who follow, so that we don't give in to laziness and gluttony, so that we don't give in to false uh, gospels that get flo- uh, floated around. But let's add one more thing, and this is a, a thing where it becomes relevant to us. I really, as I thought through this series on how to study the Bible and how to read it devotionally and all of that, you know, some of this might be old news to some of you, some of it might be refresher, some of it might be new. You, you're in all kinds of different places today. And I really, in my prayers over the last uh, bunch of months to think of where to go this year and sermon series and all that kind of thing, really the pastoral epistles were, were highlighted and Titus was one of, is one of those. Um, and I wasn't really sure how it fit in, and I thought, well, that would really fit in really well with this series, because it's so simple for us to kind of grasp together, but it's written to Titus as a leader. And so then you have to ask the question, well, is it relevant to all of us if we're not leaders within the church? Okay, so I'm a leader in our leadership team, but if I'm not a ministry leader, if I'm not that, I'm, I'm coming into church and I don't lead in any way, is this relevant? So we'll do a little more with this in the future, but the letter was to be consumed by the whole church, not simply Titus. Everybody's hearing this. And it calls the whole church to a higher standard. You know, Paul does this in, in 1 Timothy as well, when he's talking about uh, elders and leaders within the church. He's like, hey, they should be this way too. And then he kind of goes on, and he, classic Paul, he's like, actually, everybody should just act this way. <laughs> That's what he's saying here too. Your leaders should act this way in all the churches. Why? so that everybody acts this way, so that the pure is really pure, and so that we act that way as the church, so that we won't accept a false gospel and preach a false gospel as God's people. Is it really just written to Paul or to Titus? No, it's written to us too. We're supposed to get that message from this. It calls the whole church to a higher standard. A leader can't compromise, absolutely is what it says, but should anyone who follows Christ compromise? No. The obvious answer is no. They're corrupted. Then they're not pure in Christ if they compromise. It's written to all of us. We should all catch that. Last thing I want to point out about all of this is that in in preparing for the whole sermon series, I did use commentaries a little bit, but in preparing for this sermon, I didn't use commentaries. I I tried not to use any external sources because I wanted you to see that just by looking at the text, and studying the text, and using the method that I'm talking about using here, you can use other methods, I'm not that worried about it, I'm just giving you a tool, but by using those methods, you can find out an awful lot without ever having to consult anything else, because all that we need is found in God's word. God's given us what we need. Yeah, we do need to consult some other sources at some point, join the broader conversation, but to start with, don't give in to the temptation to find anything else. There's no substitute for just studying God's word. God's given us what we need in there. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word today. So grateful for your word. That you love us enough to communicate with us. You love us enough to invite us into your presence. And you want us to be a hospitable people who invite others into your presence as well. Help us find joy in your word. Help us set aside the time to study your word so that we would know you better and love you more. 
by approaching your word of truth. God, may we be a people of thankfulness, a people devoted not just to the disciplines, not just devoted to knowledge, not even just devoted to wisdom, but devoted to you. Set our heart right this morning through your word. Amen.